Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Hey, grateful for Ronnie and Mason uh, for me to be here today. And grateful for this passage because this is one of the hardest passages in the scripture. And I'm not sure if I've heard Kyle preach about this. So, hey, once again, let's posture our hearts uh, to receive what the Lord has today. Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the healing power that you possess, that you desire deeply to have a relationship with us. Lord, we pray today as we go through your word as we give testimony to what you've done in lives, that you would uh, draw us a little closer to you, that we would experience transformation, that we would be more like Jesus. Lord, we pray today that you would uh, arise the Holy Spirit in us to convict, to teach, to train, to equip, to prepare us for the work that you've already prepared for us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Mark 8, and way back in Mark 3, uh, Jesus selects his 12 disciples, prays all night long, comes down the mountain, said, you, 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 and you will be my disciples. So we know that he's about two years into this three-year ministry that he has here on earth. So he's taken his disciples on mission trips all over Israel. Now he's in the northern region of Caesarea Philippi. So we're going to jump a little bit ahead of the scripture today. We'll go to Mark 8, 27. I'll read. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So Jesus asked the question, who do people say I am? So what's John do? He goes to Facebook, Nathaniel goes to Instagram. Hey, that demoniac you healed, man, they're liking that one on Facebook. That's what he'd say today. But we, he asked the next question, like, like, what about you? And Peter nails it. Peter says, you are the Christ. Deep down where only you and God can see, Jesus asks us, who do you say I am? This is a question every human being should have the opportunity to answer. Everyone, that's why we do missions around the world. Everyone here today is given that opportunity. And your answer changes everything. Changes for you and everybody around you. Let's keep going. Mark 8, 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have the mind, you don't have in the mind in mind the things of God, but the things of men. 
So Jesus now, for the first time, he announced to his disciples, okay, it's showtime. This is what's ahead for me. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be tortured and killed. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. Peter, who just four verses earlier professed that Jesus is the Christ, pulls Jesus aside and says, now wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think um, you're hearing this right. Uh, you're scaring everybody. You're going to die? That's not the plan, Jesus. Uh, I got another, I got something else in mind. You got to stop talking like this. I don't think you're seeing things the way they should be. Hey, I got an idea. That's what we do, isn't it? We have our own plans. <clears throat> things on our mind that should happen, things on our mind that shouldn't happen. Expectations and things on our heart are set. Every, a lot of things we we think about and want to do, we don't even consult with God about. What's interesting about this story, just before this, Jesus heals the blind man. But as a first attempt at healing, it's only partial healing. And that's Peter. He's only seeing partially what Jesus had come to do. And honestly, that's my story. You know, grace is a powerful antiviral for the virus of guilt and shame. When I first went to church regularly in my mid-20s, because I'm not a professional pastor, I've had zero hours of Bible college, zero hours of seminary. I was trained as a dentist and a business guy. So, uh, so I, didn't go to, I didn't really come to faith until later in my life. And I'd stored up all this guilt and shame for the things I'd done, and I was honestly desperate for relief. I wanted to offload this heavy thing I was carrying. The preacher in the church I was visiting at the time, he, he talked about grace and he could explain it beautifully. That there was this grace that was offered through a savior that would take away all of my sins. <laughs> I, I couldn't be, I could be free of these things that were weighing me down. Well, I believed it. And uh, who wouldn't want that, right? So I put my faith in Christ, was baptized and and receive forgiveness, but only temporarily relief from my guilt and shame. And when we step into baptistry, what do we say? I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord and Savior. Now, I was grateful for the Savior part, but frankly, I had no clue what it meant to say Jesus was my Lord. So does that sound like Peter? He could only, I could only see partially what God was doing. I, wanted, I was in it for me initially. But uh, I profess that Jesus was Christ. But what it, did it mean to really have a relationship with Jesus? You know, our Father only leads with grace and love. And everyone's journey is messy. And almost, almost everyone's. I think there's a few exceptions. And it's God's story he wants to write in us uh, and through us. So let me share this story. About 20 years ago, we host this medical missions conference. I heard this doctor uh, share his story his name was dr paul brand and he grew up in india he was born there in 1914 and his dad was a missionary to india his parents were there and his dad was building churches all across india and uh he he just loved his dad he worshiped his dad he wanted to be just like his dad and uh, he saw the impact his dad was having but when paul was 15 his father dies of black water fever. And Paul's devastated. 
And he said, I almost lost my faith. If it wasn't for Romans 8.28, which says, all things work for the good to those who love God. Paul said, I knew God knew that mosquito was going to inject that pathogen in my dad. And I knew God knew he was going to take, take him from me. So as this 81-year-old man is sharing his story, he stops. He goes, you know the advantage of being 81 years old? Enough time has passed and you can look back and you can say, oh, that's why those things had to happen. That way. You see, Paul <clears throat> returned back to England, followed this young lady that he really liked into medical school, and he became a surgeon, but not just a run-of-the-mill surgeon. Dr. Brand <clears throat> unraveled the mystery of leprosy that resulted in amazing breakthroughs in the treatment of the effects of leprosy. Millions of people's lives were impacted, and the surgical techniques he pioneered <clears throat> have gone around the world. Had that mosquito not bitten his dad and taken his life, he said, I would have been building churches in India. Instead, God used Dr. Brand to help destroy the stigma of leprosy. We don't see that here, but around the world, it's a real stigma. <clears throat> and improve the lives of many. So the Bible says, many are the plans in the mind of man. It is the purpose of Lord that will stand. What the enemy meant for evil God uses for good. God is a God that redeems all things. He is the one writing your story and my story. And no matter what you're going through, he wants to rescue us. He wants to clean us up and give us that life in abundance. His word says that he has come that we may have life and life in abundance. I'm here to tell you that I experienced the Redeemer's rescue, the cleansing, and a life in abundance. You know, for 16 years, I could use my passion for dentistry and missions to go around the world, some of the most remotest parts of the world. And I would go, and we would train local brothers and sisters, the local church, on how to uh, give local anesthetic and how to extract an abscess tooth. I was in one region in northern Ghana, which is West Africa. There was one part-time dentist for 3 million people. So when we show up, Hundreds of people in line to be treated. And so when we left those skills behind and, and gave them those skills, their esteem in the community went up where they were persecuted. When somebody lays down in a chair, a dental chair, and you guys have done this, that's a very vulnerable spot. And when they open your mouth and, and they let you go in to, to do whatever, uh, they're saying they trust you. So when they say they trust you, that's a perfect door opener to the gospel. So these folks that are trained and all over the world, uh, we're seeing thousands of people come to faith because they have this skill of dentistry to meet this dental need. Even Muslim scholars and Hindu priests who view uh, these Christians as infidels, when that tooth hurts, all that falls away. <laughs> so this is amazing life and abundance that God has given us. And I can give testimony to that. But I want to tell you, 31 years ago, when I came to this church, that wasn't my story. I was a mess. Uh, I'm going to spare the gory details, but my marriage was on the rocks. As a father, I stunk. I had no patience for my kids. All that mattered to me at that time was being successful. 
I thought there's got to be more to this life than this life I'm living. Even though I believe I was destined for heaven, I barely knew the person of Jesus. Let's go back to Mark 8. So Peter once again rebukes Jesus, and then he gets rebuked back. So <laughs> I didn't realize how many times in the scripture Peter gets rebuked. So, but guess what, guys? We're Peter. I am Peter. So let's go to verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to lose his life, excuse me, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, um, we have a rich tradition in our faith. In the early 1800s when missionaries were leaving England and they were, they were moving to, to uh, West Africa, they packed all their stuff in their casket because they knew when they were coming back, they'd be coming back in a casket. They knew their life wasn't their own. And, and it's a great testimony to what um, our forefathers have done. Now, on my team, there's two Africans, one from Congo, one from Liberia, that will give testimony to the work of American missionaries that went to the nations, and British missionaries and others that went to the nations hundreds of years ago. <clears throat> so, these are powerful words, hard words. Deny yourself. This is not easy to live out. So Jesus says, huddle up, guys. Come on. Now listen, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be tortured and killed. And I'm, three days later, I'm coming back. And you're going to have to make some decisions about following me and who I am. And you need to understand two things if you're going to be my disciple. Number one, you have to deny yourself. Number two, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself? Really? A British theologian said it this way, the first to kill is self, and it'll take the rest of your life to do it. Every one of us has a Jesus problem, and God uses Peter's story to demonstrate our problem. We pick on G Peter all the time. He's impulsive. He's unfaithful. He says one thing and does another. He's awkward. Preachers pick on Peter all the time, use, his, of an, use him as an example of what not to do, but we are Peter. The question Jesus asked us, who do you say I am? If like me, you said he is my savior and you leave out the Lord part, what I found, you're going to need to re revisit that question. God does not negotiate terms, but he's always a gentleman. He won't impose his will on us. Jesus says either I'm your Lord or I'm not. You choose. I'm not going to impose on you. Jesus comes to take up residence and to take over our lives. And uh, we have to submit to his lordship. Before the king can come into his place in our life, we must go. You can't have two kings on the throne of your life. One of our mantras is be the branch from John 15. Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branch. If you remain in me and I in you, 
you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. In order to be the branch, our will has to be broken to God's will. This is not easy and counter to our natural inclination. And God promises to make a deposit, a counselor to help us, the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So as soon as we say yes to Jesus, God promises the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants to be our best friend. But for any friendship to grow, we need time together and getting to know each other. In Luke 15, we read the story of the prodigal son, which is how we know the story. Well, this is the subtitle the Bible translators put on this section. A better title would be the prodigal father. The story is more about the character of our father than it is about the misdeeds of the son. So you remember the story from John 15. <clears throat> There's a father, he has two sons. The youngest son says, hey, uh, half this estate that you have is mine, so I'd like it right now. And the father says, okay, it's yours. So he gathers it all up. The younger son goes to a foreign land and has a ball and squanders all his dad's money. And he gets to the end of himself. A famine hits that land. And now this son has nothing. And the Bible says he began to be in need. He was so desperate that uh, he hired himself to a pig, out to a pig farmer who um, said, go feed the pigs. So here's this son who's making this dramatic fall, and now he's feeding pigs. And he's longing to eat the foods the pigs, the pigs are eating. That's how bad he was. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that they were eating. But no one gave him anything. Then he comes to his senses. He, goes, he thought to himself, how many of my father's hired hands are eating well and they have spare food? But here I am. So let's pick it up in verse 18. As he uh, is preparing a speech that he's going to give to his father. Father, uh, he goes, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he, he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, Dad. I've sinned against you in heaven, against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servant, okay, quick. Get a robe, put it on my son. Get a ring, put it on his finger. Get a, uh, some, some sandals. Let's have a feast. Kill the fatted calf. Um, my son was, the son of mine was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found and they have a big party. But if, if we, uh, far from focusing on the sins of the son, God always sees us through eyes of love. The father runs, and the son uh, has his speech prepared, and, uh, but the father won't let him finish it. That's the way God loves us. 
the son says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he never was worthy to be called his son. Uh, that's the reality. So at one time, he must have thought he was worthy to be called his son, but now he realizes he's not. That's the way our father loves us. The son models for us brokenness. Being broken is both God's work and it's our work. God will bring the pressure on. He was pressuring this son. But we have to make the choice. Again, God won't impose. He'll also show us our pr proud, hard self that caused him and everyone around us pain. And we can harden our hearts and refuse to repent, or we can bow our heads and say, yes, Lord. The Bible says, whoever remains stiff-necked with many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. We never have to fear returning to our Father, no matter what we've done or not done, because God's love for us has nothing to do with our behavior. The Lord said, the Lord Jesus cannot live in us fully and reveal himself until our proud self has been broken. And that requires in us a spirit of surrender to deny ourselves and our self-attitudes. The proud self is what? It's unyielding. It justifies itself. It stands up for its own rights. It seeks its own glory. It demands its own way. And we've all done that, all those things. All I have to do is go back in my memory to, you know, yesterday or the day before when that proud self welled up. But the surrendered self bows to God's will, admits it's wrong, gives up its rights, and discards its own glory. When we decide to follow Jesus, we sign away all our rights. Do you guys know that? I couldn't be a victim of anything anymore because I have no rights. I'm totally his. I'm his bondservant, the scripture says. This is a hard teaching, guys, but that's exactly what Jesus did, wasn't it? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his father, Everything is possible with you, Father. Take this cup from me, Lord. I don't want to do this. Yet not my will, but your will be done. He too gave away all his rights as a son of God. An innocent man died on a cross, a humiliating death. And Lord, we, I mean, um, we try to, to sugarcoat it, but when Jesus is on the cross, uh, and we look at these pictures that these artists do, He's always got something covering him up. But that day when he was on that cross, he didn't. He was totally naked in front of everybody. An innocent man. Remember Peter was, was uh, in the garden and the soldiers show up and Peter pulls his sword out and he cuts off Jesus' ear. This always impacted me early in my faith. Here was this guy. First, Jesus repairs the ear, and he tells Peter, Peter, don't you know that I could have called down 12,000 angels? These angels are at their, their hand on their sword, ready to pull it. All Jesus had to do was say the word, and he would have taken care of everything. But he didn't. He never said the word. If we really want to experience life and life in abundance, we, have to, we die to self. That's what our Lord did for us. Anything, anything that springs from self, however small, is still self. Complacency, 
self-pity when we have trials and difficulties, self-seeking in business or ministry, self-indulgence, touchiness, self-defense. When people hurt us, we get defensive. These are examples of a proud self. Even self-consciousness and worry and, and reserve and fear are examples of, proud, of a proud self. When you think too highly of yourself or you think too lowly of yourself, you're not seeing yourself as God sees you and declares you to be. And it doesn't align with what God says. So God calls us to live this substituted life. So Paul talks about this in Galatians 2. So it's Peter's in Antioch. There's a bunch of new believers there, new brothers. So he's hanging out with them, and uh, Peter is. And he's uh, having meals with them. He's telling Jesus stories. And now all of a sudden, his Jewish buddy starts showing up, uh, and Peter starts drawing away from these new Gentile brothers. And uh, this is the spirit of condemnation that Jesus experienced from the Pharisees when he said, that guy, he just eats with sinners and tax collectors. So once again, Peter gets rebuked, this time by Paul. He goes, fellas, look, don't set aside the grace of God. If we could have gained righteousness by following the law or achieved righteousness by our good behavior, Jesus died for nothing. Paul sums it up in Galatians 2.20. 2 I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Simply said, God says, Jesus says, not I, but Christ. We set ourselves aside. We deny ourselves. So just to break down that scripture a little bit, I've been crucified with Christ. What does crucifixion do? It kills you. And you no longer live. However, Christ, who is eternal, now lives in you. So I live a life in Christ, and I live this life by faith. Jesus calls us to this substituted life. So Second uh, Corinthians also says, we're a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. One understood Jesus just to be my Savior. There wasn't any transformation in my life. After I got baptized in those first few years, I was pretty much the same as I was before. That's why I'm so, like, I started driving up, and you guys are already here at 645 this morning. That says a lot about who you are. Because you know what? A lot of guys won't get up. Uh, they'll have find other things to do. But when I started... Um, walking with men, and men started showing me what it meant to submit to the lordship of Jesus, everything changed. Everything. The church saw in me, hey, I could be a leader in this church. Uh, I could be a deacon. The church said, hey, you've applied for this job. We'd like for you to do that. And then now I'm on the lead team of the church. But I remember how I was. But it took other men in my life to transform my life. And a lot of times it's not directly what you say, just hanging with people. The best way to learn is to catch. And they don't even know they've done it. Like, how do they talk to their son or how do they deal with their wife in that situation? And you're hanging out with them and you see them do something and say, you know, I need to do that. 
You know what? The hardest thing for us to do as men is to surrender to God's love. He loves us. We have this training in our culture that we think everything is dependent on our behavior. No, he loves us. And then after we accept his love, then we have to forgive ourselves. You know, that was the hardest thing for me to do. It took me years. And then one day it occurred to me that, wait a minute, the God of the universe, the sovereign God of the universe has forgiven me. Surely I can forgive myself and accept that truth that God loves us. It doesn't matter how good or bad I was, I was never worthy. From the day I was born, I was never worthy to be called a child of God. Only Jesus. Let's read Mark, this last little section in Mark 8, 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, so the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So Jesus came to save and he's coming back and boy it sure does feel like he's coming back soon so when he comes back he wants to know who was ashamed of him and if I'm honest there was a time in my walk with Jesus that I was ashamed of Jesus and his words and if that's you he knows it already you know what the root cause of my shame of being ashamed of Jesus I was just too lazy to look into it People were saying these things. I could see other men's life. I could see their marriages. I could see how they dealt with their kids. But I was just lazy. So God says if we dig, if we seek, we'll find him. One of the things I, I notice in myself is this, uh, in, in uh, the church in the U.S., not so in around the world, there's this apathy. There's this complacency. There's this lack of thirst for him. So I've been finding myself praying for more thirst for Jesus. And he promised he'll give it. You know, while this matters, yeah, you want to go to heaven. We all want to go to heaven. But this matters because God created us to be ambassadors of love. And there's no way you can be a good ambassador of love on your own. It's just not in you. It's only Christ. Your family, your workplace, our community, the world needs ambassadors of love that have surrendered to the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you, uh, your word is amazing. Your word uh, became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus, and we're thankful for that. And Lord, we do pray that little simple prayer that it would be not I, but you. Not I, but you in us. And Lord, we, we, we want to experience that brokenness, and that brokenness is a daily thing. It's an hourly thing. Uh, so just help us, Lord, to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, our best friend in us, as he speaks and he shares with us, that we would experience that constant brokenness to understand uh, who you are, that you did save us, that you walk with us every day. So, Lord, we pray for a thirst uh, for more of Jesus. Will you do that in us, Lord? And thank you, Lord, that you, you called us and you sealed us with the Holy Spirit. And, Lord, I'm just grateful for this group of men that uh, show up early to want to hang and learn more about you. So, Lord, we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. 
For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.